the region's premier medical information program. Call the doctor. We all get digestive issues from time to time, but there are those whose symptoms are much more severe than that. Some people deal with poor digestion every single day, and that can affect their lives in many different ways. We'll talk about some of the more common stomach and intestinal issues, when to worry, and what you can do if this describes you or someone you know. Digestive issues on this episode of Call the Doctor. Hello, welcome. We're so glad you're with us for this season and this episode of Call the Doctor. Let's get right to tonight's panelists. We have a full house tonight, and I love that. I love when we have so many great minds here. We can have a good discussion about digestive issues, unfortunately, but I know it's something that a lot of people deal with in this area. So I'm going to get right to who you all are. If you could tell me who you are and, and you know who you represent, where we can find you. Sure. Dr. Amazing Tolema. I'm a general gastroenterologist at Commonwealth Health uh, Wilkes-Barre General Hospital. Okay, welcome. Hi, I'm Aman Ali. I'm an advanced gastroenterologist with Digestive Care Associates in Kingston. In Kingston, great. Welcome. I'm Dr. Charles Grad. I practice with Lackawanna Medical Group in Scranton. All right, welcome to you. And you, Thank sir? You. I'm Korda Yuasa. I'm a gastroenterologist at Geisinger Medical Center in Danville. Uh, my interests are in Crohn's and ulcerative colitis. All right, great. We have um, a lot to get to tonight. So I think what we'll start with is the lack of a problem, you know, a basic function of the digestive system, when it's working, how it works. So I guess we'll start with you, Doctor. How, how, how does it work? Just sort of a boiled down wow. version of, of, of all, I know there's a lot of different moving parts and, and pieces to a digestive right. system. Well, it's actually a lot, the map of the digestive system is a lot easier than one thinks. So the digestive system starts in the oral cavity in the mouth, esophagus, stomach, small intestine, and large intestine. Um, uh, so from the mouth to the anal canal is the, I guess, the digestive system, start and finish. Um, the purpose of the oral cavity is to obviously, um, you know, break down foods into smaller pieces. Um, and the purpose of the esophagus is to transport the masticated material down into the stomach where further churning and preparation uh, for the liquid and solid components to be um, introduced into the small intestine, which actually does the majority of the absorption of calories and nutrients, which I think a lot of people don't know that. Uh, so much of the digestion as we know it, as we think it, takes place in 20 feet of small intestine. And then the last five feet or so, the, the large intestine, its sole function really is to reclaim the water uh, so that in, in effect we're making solid store. That's what we're supposed to be doing. Uh, so that's basically it in 90 seconds. I mean, I guess what I was getting at is there's a there's a lot there's a lot of different places where people could have issues in that entire mm -hmm. system. How uh, we'll start with Dr. Grad. How do you know when there's a, a an issue and when? Do you see what I'm getting at? When do right. people have to seek help? Well, the GI lab's about 30 feet long. Okay, 20 feet is a small bowel. Five feet is the upper intestine, five feet is the lower intestine. Fortunately, okay, although he's an advanced endoscopist, fortunately, most of the pathology is in the top five feet and the bottom five feet, which is fairly easily accessible with uh, endoscopic equipment. And that's, you know, a large measure what we do is uh, upper GI problems probably uh, reflux is the most common. Uh, ulcers are, are less common now because of uh, treatment for H. pylori, but 
you know, ulcers can occur from medications too. But probably the most common upper GI problem is, is reflux. Uh, usually it's benign, but it can be more serious. Lower five feet, that's where there's a lot of action, okay? And the biggest issue is the potential development of colon cancer, which gets everybody uh, concerned. But also inflammatory bowel disease involves predominantly the, the colon and to some extent the, uh, the small bowel too, with especially Crohn's. Can so, you explain what H. pylori is to those H. who don't know? H. pylori is a bacterial infection that you acquire typically at an early age, and it's associated with uh, the development of uh, ulcer disease in the intestine and also uh, potentially uh, gastric cancer. But, uh, you know, there's, you know, it used to be the idea that, you know, people thought lots of things, food, if different issues and stuff like that, and, you know, the person who first thought it might be a bacteria sort of got chuckled at, but it turned out to be an, an infection in the... Uh, the lining of the stomach that, that created uh, ulcers. Um, we'll go to you in a second. I would love to know what some of the more common issues are that you hear of. People in your office, what are they complaining of most often? Sure. So as Dr. Grad already mentioned, you know, reflux, heartburn um, is a common symptom we see. Difficulty with swallowing, just with food getting stuck. The other common things we'll see is uh, abdominal pain, diarrhea, sometimes blood in the stool, loss of constipation. Those are probably the most common things we see. And then a little bit uh, less common would be issues with the liver. Um, some liver diseases, for example, can cause jaundice, so, which is yellowing of the eyes or skin. So those are probably the, the most common things that I would see in clinic. And the reasons that patients would go to their primary care doctor, for example, or sometimes the emergency room and get referred to us for further evaluation. I would imagine most people have issues from time to time. You, you just don't feel great, something didn't sit well, et cetera. Is there always an issue there? It, sometimes things just don't work as they should, or does that mean that there's something that's not working quite right? It's tough to say, because sometimes after we do some evaluation, we don't exactly find the answer. I think a lot of these symptoms that last only for a short amount of time, you know, you might be able to remember, oh, I ate something that maybe wasn't so good, or I got a stomach bug, or maybe my family member was sick and they passed on something to me. And sometimes we don't have a great explanation. Um, so a lot of times we see these patients and if the symptoms have already passed and everything looks okay, then we maybe reassure them if we don't find anything serious. Um, and sometimes we do have obvious explanations. It's when I think the symptoms become more chronic or certainly they become debilitating or we see issues in the blood work or the patient's really struggling, that's when we become more concerned and we really want to try to do a lot of evaluation to figure out what's going on. Uh, so we talked a little bit about the, the upper, and I know that you do a lot of those type scopes. Can you tell people what they might expect if they have to get one? Yeah, so uh, the procedures we do uh, to evaluate the gastrointestinal disorders, uh, they, back in 60s or 70s when they were very simplified procedures of just doing a camera test down your throat when you're sedated and have an endoscopy done and or colonoscopy done from, from the bottom to look inside the colon. But now we have really um, uh, morphed into a much more uh, complicated uh, and advanced area, and we can do a lot uh, with the, the same platforms, you know, as we're going down the throat uh, with endoscopy or EGD procedure, endo endoscopic uh, uh, esophageal gastroduodenoscopy procedure, which is EGD, esophagus is E, uh, G is the gastro, and duodenum is the upper part of the uh, intestine, so the most common procedure we do is called EGD. And what you expect for 
uh, EGD is patient will have an overnight fast and uh, they will come over to the endoscopy center or to the hospital where they're supposed to be. Usually there are preoperative instructions given clearly uh, as to uh, what blood thinners they have to stop and uh, what uh, adjustment they have to make in their certain medications uh, such as diabetes medicines and so forth. And um, essentially um, what to expect is to get an IV um, in the pre-op area, explanation of the procedures, doctor will talk to you, explain what they're going to do, and uh, then you go to the um, procedure room. And uh, um, for, from a patient perspective, uh, they just go to uh, sedation for this procedure, most commonly, and um, uh, that procedure itself takes about five to 10 minutes to perform. And, it's that uh, quick? Yes. And um, what an endoscopist or a doctor will do is that they will introduce a lighted instrument uh, in patient's mouth carefully. Uh, we have a mouth guard which helps protect their teeth and protect the instrument. And then we go carefully down the upper digestive tract into the esophagus, uh, live looking at the uh, anatomical structures in the esophagus uh, and then into the a critical area which we call GE junction here where the stomach and esophagus meets then we go in the stomach and then we go in the intestine which is the duodenum hence the EGD and um, uh, essentially if we see anything abnormal we'll take biopsies small pieces of tissue very small uh, which are sent off for further analysis uh, for colonoscopy it is somewhat different um, patients have to usually uh, modify their diet the day before. Mm -hmm. So they will be uh, drinking only the what we call clear liquids um, and you know soup and broth and jello, nothing red in color because that looks like uh, blood to us. Um, and uh, then they are giving a cleansing agent, there are a variety of different cleansing agents, some are tablets, some are liquids that they take to basically flush their system. Um, this is more medical uh, proper cleansing uh, not the not the colonics that you hear, which is right. I, I'm just diverging here a little bit, but has no medical value. Okay. Um, but anyway, um, so they cleanse, and then after that, um, uh, you know, uh, they will just still come to the endoscopy suite the next day, just like uh, for the endoscopy, and uh, they will be fasting overnight and expect essentially the same protocol. Colonoscopy takes a little bit longer, about 15 to 20 minutes. The, the biggest complaint is about the preparation, yeah. okay? And you can modify it to some extent with patients. Uh, the biggest and big changes I think made colonoscopy much more satisfactory has been the sedation. We grew up a lot with what we called conscious sedation, which was Demerol, Versed, and, uh, which, which kept the patient sedated, but uh, you know, sometimes it was more uncomfortable. But there's been major changes, major changes in, in colonoscopy. And I think the biggest ones have been uh, uh, the anesthesia, which is propofol, which is uh, you know, really just a, a fabulous drug for, for colonoscopies. Uh, so that, that's been a, a huge, a huge, huge benefit and um, just being able to complete the exam with a patient. You know, shows up in the, uh, the recovery room and doesn't feel that anything's really been done. And the other big thing that's changed to some extent, especially at some of the hospital endoscopy areas, are the use of uh, CO2, 
we don't put air into the colon. A lot of people used to have a difficult time post-colonoscopy with retention of air, cramping, discomfort, except you weren't sure that there was a problem. Now uh, CO2 is infused into the colon, and especially with protracted procedures, as doctor does, okay, it's, it's been a huge, huge benefit. So there's really no reason not to do a colonoscopy. The prep is a little bit of a problem for a day, but the actual procedure and the potential of, of saving your life or removing a polyp before a surgeon has to take a large portion of your colon out, that's, it's, it's a simple procedure. It's hard to say how simple it uh, is. How it is, I'd like to add one more sure. uh, uh, improvement that we've made. We have an all-male panel here, yeah. but actually uh, uh, there are plenty of uh, female gastroenterologists in practice now. Uh, that is a big point of emphasis, it, 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 starting with our training. We have a fellowship program, GI fellowship program, and we have female candidates all the time. Uh, I, I have excellent uh, uh, women colleagues uh, in, in Danville and, and other areas, other sites. Uh, so if that's an issue, uh, that is definitely an option, and the patients should inquire about that that's and ask point. their primary care doctors. That's a very good point. Yeah. But women are actually more likely to get, in my mind, colonoscopies. They're used to mammographies. They're used to pelvic. They're used to. It's the men that the, they always push the women first. It's the wife that comes first, and after she survives, the, the guy will sometimes be pushed along. No, but uh, with the with the uh, same on the same note, I would say that uh, from patient perspective, because we have been on the other side of the uh, table and. Uh, from from family member standpoint who underwent the procedure or, or our own personal experiences um, Procedure is the easiest part of it um, You go to the procedure room or pre-op area you're getting your IV you get your sedation and then you don't even remember it happened It's a completely painless procedure uh, you should not expect any discomfort after uh, the procedure. Obviously, you don't uh, work uh, that day for 24 hours after uh, the sedation. It's not safe to work or do anything important. Mm -hmm. uh, but other than that, uh, there's no limitation uh, from your life-to-life, uh, day-to-day -life, activities. You can resume your function next day. I wanted to get into some of the uh, specifics, some of the problems, and, and I'll, I'll start with you, Dr. Yuasa, okay. because I know that you uh, deal a lot with Crohn's yeah. and, and, uh, and ulcerative colitis. Yes. Could you explain, are those autoimmune yes, uh, issues? Yes, they are. Uh, they're generally regarded as autoimmune illnesses, and they tend to run uh, with other autoimmune illnesses as well. Um, and so with, they fall under the umbrella of inflammatory bowel disease with a D as opposed to IBS, which we can talk about later. Um, so Crohn's disease can affect anywhere from the mouth to the anus, like I described earlier. Ulcerative colitis is typically limited just to the large intestine, almost in universally involving the rectum and um, spreading upward, so to speak, over time. Um, and um, the other thing about it is that it, there's no really cure for either one of the diseases yet. Um, you know, that's an area of active research. So we are tasked to treat the illness, uh, usually requiring immunosuppression at one point mm -hmm. um, um, after a certain amount of time, usually. Um, and um, they typically occur, they're typically diagnosed between ages of 15 to 30. So it's predominantly a disease of younger people, people who are transitioning from school to work, from uh, childhood to adulthood to parenthood. So it's a, so these are people, uh, autoimmune illnesses affecting people in the crossroads of life, uh, which I find very rewarding. And 
so th those are two issues in particular that, uh, I mean, anecdotally, I know a lot of people, or I seem to, who, who deal with those types of issues. But you mentioned earlier that these are, this is not something you can take a pill for, this is not something you can just treat and fix. This is sort of a lifelong yeah. uh, partnership you're going to have to have with a doctor. Yeah. But what do you tell your patients? No, you're absolutely right. Um, so, you know, again, just painting in the broadest strokes, you know, this is an autoimmune illness. It's a chronic lifelong illness for now. We hope that there's a cure in the future. Uh, but, and there is no quick fix. Um, the treatment, for the most part, you know, deals with somehow manipulating your immune system um, to dampen the immune system, to stop it from attacking your own body. And it's a lifelong process. Um, and, and so uh, there are no quick fixes. Uh, and with Crohn's disease, I, I should add, you know, some surgical uh, things here, even though we're all medical doctors. So for Crohn's disease, surgery is, is not a cure. And so the viewers should know that. Um, there are times you need to have surgery because Crohn's disease can develop into complications such as you know, uh, intestinal obstructions, abscess formations, what have you. Uh, so it's, it's not a cure. Uh, with ulcerative colitis, interesting enough, you can technically say, once you remove the large intestine, a subtotal colectomy, that's potentially a cure, but a lot of times you trade it for other illnesses, uh, other conditions, which my colleagues can certainly talk about as well. Now that's IBD, different mm. from IBS. Yeah. Right. But what does IBS even, I know what it stands for, but what does it even mean? So I guess the first thing is the unfortunate fact that the acronyms for IBS, or irritable bowel syndrome, and IBD, or inflammatory bowel disease, are very close. And so patients can often get confused because they're very different things. Ah. And the other unfortunate part is we don't really 100% understand what IBS exactly is. So it's probably the most common thing that any of us see in our clinics. And often patients will come with abdominal pain and either diarrhea or constipation or both. And we need to do a little bit of investigation to make sure they don't have other common diseases such as celiac or Crohn's disease or things like that. Uh, but there's no specific test they can say for sure that you have IBS, but it's more like the, the clinical history, what the patient tells us, combined with the fact that we tested for other diseases, and none of them came back positive. And there's a lot of research into why people have IBS. Probably in 50 to 100 years, we'll understand it a lot better, and it might turn out that there's actually several different things. It might be um, part of our, the nerves that um, control our gut. Some might be hyperreactive. It might have something to do with the bacteria that live in our colon. All of us have billions of bacteria that live in our colon, but some people might have different uh, strains that might cause it. This also means that because we don't understand 100% why it happens, we don't understand exactly how to fix it. Mm. And so there's a couple of different treatments we can try and different approaches, and it's not a one-size-fits-all. You kind of have to work with the patient. And similar to IBD, it's really, for most people, it's a chronic, lifelong thing where we kind of have to work with the patient, try different things, and approach it really from a multitude of different areas, not just from their symptoms, but also we are beginning to understand that it might be related to the brain-gut connection because we have a lot of nerves that connect our brain to our gut. And so sometimes some of the chemicals in our brain that make us feel happy or sad or stressed might go actually go down to our gut and give us some, um, some symptoms. So patients might feel that strange, but then I always like to remind them that you know, when you're nervous, we have the saying that you have butterflies in your stomach. So when you're nervous, you know there's nothing going on down here, but you kind of feel it through your gut. So in the same way, IBS might be triggered by those things. 
um, huh. certain emotions, life stressors. It might be triggered by certain things you eat. Um, we don't really 100% understand it. So there's no one-size-fits-all, unfortunately, for these, but uh, we kind of have to work with the patients. And sometimes it requires some trial and error to figure out what exactly will work to the with the patient, and they have to kind of come back and see us and re really form a, a partnership um, when it comes to IBS. Some people have fairly severe uh, IBS, either way, constipation, diarrhea. And there are medications, but it's still a, viewed as a benign disorder. So we've had, at least in my, my lifetime, several different medications, uh, Propulsid, uh, Cisapride, uh, Zelnorm, that the pharmaceutical companies invested billions of dollars in developing the medication. But since the disorder is a benign one, uh, it these meds became more popular out after initial testing. And then the there were some developments with uh, cardiac issues uh, and uh, three incredibly wonderful drugs that dealt with receptors and dealt with the way the bowel works had to be pulled from the market because it's still a benign disease. I mean, Crohn's and ulcerative colitis is not a benign disease. You, you see the, the ads over and over again on television about the benefits and then you hear the possible complications, but that's still a very serious disease, so accepting some risk for those medications is acceptable given the fact that the disease is, is a very serious one. IBS is still viewed as benign, but for, for a lot of people, uh, it's not a benign disorder. I was going to say it's probably hard to tell a patient who's really struggling. Uh, not, no, no, it, and, right. and there are medicines. You know, Lotrinex was taken off the market, but there was enough medication or enough uh, uh, patients that were on the medicine, and it was wonderful for them. And they lobbied the the, the uh, Congress to put it back on the market with, with restrictions. So, you know, it's, it's a situation where IBS is, as we say, one of the more common things we see, but, uh, you know, it's, it's still a benign condition. I mean, it is benign condition, but it could be debilitating for the sure. patient. Yeah. So um, when we say benign, we know it's not going to cause mortality or, you know, their lifespan is not going to be uh, shortened by it, uh, such as, for example, pancreatic cancer is a death sentence for some, some of the patients. And, uh, so I, uh, IBS, in that regard, it's uh, also labeled as functional disorders, and the functionality of the gastrointestinal system is not uh, well, and we have a host of functional disorders elsewhere in the GI tract as well. But, but uh, what I find helpful, and um, as uh, my, my uh, colleagues have mentioned, that it is not one, one particular strategy that fits all, but uh, patient empowerment, I believe, by education and letting them understand their disease state, uh, the peaks and troughs that comes with it. It's not going to be a steady state. And then uh, really um, sort of, uh, you know, uh, capturing this disease and taking control of the disease, understanding it and uh, addressing the 600-pound gorilla in the room and, you know, letting the uh, patient control the disease rather than disease control the patient. So that, that is important. Um, but having said that, when, when needed, uh, we as the patient coach, we will advise them lifestyle modification, dietary modifications, as well as uh, some medical pharma pharmacological intervention, which can help some select patients significantly. Is there a hereditary component to some of these illnesses? I mean, um, are you more likely to see them in families? Certainly. I mean, uh, all across the spectrum in gastrointestinal disorders, you do see the family history plays a very important role. 
um, uh, whether it be inflammatory bowel disease, uh, whether it be some of the genetic syndromes uh, in terms of uh, the cancers uh, that are prevalent uh, in, in a certain family uh, population. Uh, so uh, yes, definitely there is a component uh, to that. And I suppose with the last few minutes we have, we can get into, uh, we, we've talked about uh, some various uh, issues in the, in the digestive system, but I know you've all at some point brought up cancer and, mm -hmm. and the screening for cancer. You're seeing things a lot younger than you have. I mean, I, I know that the recommendation has, has gotten a little lower, Dr. Yuasa. Uh, yes, so the colon cancer screening in general, uh, sh uh, I think the recommendation is to start at 45. You still say somewhere between 45 and 50, but uh, for general uh, average risk patients, so patients without people without uh, family history of colon cancer, usually um, uh, defined as a first degree relative, so a sibling or parent diagnosed with cancer before the age of 60 is considered to be the uh, significant family history. So like a grandparent really wouldn't count there. So somebody without family history or somebody without ulcerative colitis or Crohn's disease, which can increase the risk, for, for colon cancer, so those at average risk should start at 45. Those with first-degree relative uh, with young uh, colon cancer, you should start uh, either at 35 or 10 years before the age of diagnosis for that index family mm -hmm. member. Mm -hmm. So if you have a, a dad that was diagnosed at age 57, you should start at, well, 45, uh, or it's, it's 47 or 45, whichever is earlier. So, you know, if so, so if you have a father that was diagnosed at age 50, you know, you should start at 40, I guess is a better. If you have one of the, I'm sorry, go ahead. You were I was just gonna add yeah. for, you know, for um, the non-medical people watching, when we say screening in medicine, we typically are talking about trying to find a disease before it causes symptoms. So just for our viewers out there, you don't want to wait until you have symptoms. So this is saying if you have absolutely no symptoms and you reach the age of 45 and you have no family history, we want to try to find it before it starts or if God forbid you have it when it's still early before it causes symptoms because then hopefully we can treat it or even prevent it. This so, is the one arena where it is actually preventable. Yes, and we screen for other cancers and your primary care doctor might screen you for diabetes, for example. But screening just means that you don't have any symptoms of it yet and we want to try to catch it early. Yeah. The other thing that we talked about was the Cologuard because you see incredible number of ads regarding a Cologuard test. And the Cologuard test is a reasonable choice for average risk patients. It's not actually for any high risk, they say that. So uh, the issue with the Cologuard is it's every three years. It's not like uh, if you have a 45, no uh, history, you get a colonoscopy, a good quality colonoscopy. The next time you're doing that is 10 years. Mm. If you get a, a Cologuard, uh, you really are supposed to repeat the call guard about every three years. Okay, so that it's a big difference, and uh, we talked uh, in terms of uh, the false positive. Right. Uh, you know, and then you get through. Uh, have to do the colonoscopy anyway, but it 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 does bring some people who just are terrified about the idea of uh, getting a colonoscopy to sure. do a call guard, and if it's positive. At least the data suggests that two thirds of them will then go ahead well, and get the one third will still not do it. I hope, if nothing else, someone gets a screening at least from this show. That's all the time we have, and that's going to do it for this episode. We're really glad you've joined us. For all of us here at WVIA, I'm Julie Sedoni. We'll see you next time.